Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 543 with Britt Andrietta. Britt is back talking about how to build skills faster, learn more, improve mental performance. You'll learn one, how to make your learning stick. Two, the striking benefits of boredom. And three, how to deal with information overwhelm. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep543. Now here's Brit's story. Dr. Britt Andrietta is an internationally recognized thought leader who creates brain science-based solutions for today's challenges. As CEO of Seventh Mind, Inc., Britt Andrietta draws on her unique background in leadership, neuroscience, psychology, and learning to unlock the best in people, helping organizations rise to their potential. Big thanks to Britt for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provider compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Britt. Britt, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hi, Pete. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Oh, me too. Me too. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom associated with learning. And I understand you've been learning some things about fabric arts lately. What's the story here? <laughs> you know, I have discovered a new hobby for myself, which kind of surprised me, but I am just really into it. And it takes me to that place of flow where I can do it for hours and not feel like I'm I'm working. And it really, you know, because I'm a researcher, I'm always in my head analyzing stuff and it, it gets me out of that. And I just get to pr- play with color and textures and builds these beautiful fabric murals that um, I, I just take great joy from it, but it's a new hobby. So I'm, I'm now in that place where you're trying to like feed the flames of a new hobby and, you know, investing way too much in it and then figuring out where I'm putting it in the house and have scraps of stuff everywhere. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, a fabric mural, I don't know if I have seen a fabric mural before. I probably have. I just don't even realize it. Help me visualize that. <laughs> well, so you could draw something on a piece of fabric and then instead of using paint to fill it in, you use pieces of fabric to be your paint. And so you're sewing them on or stitching them on or quilting them on, whatever technique you want to use to build the image using fabric. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I've heard that these kinds of activities, here's a segue for you, you know, like these sorts of things, kind of like knitting is something that can sort of Put you into a different brain groove. And I imagine you are one of the most qualified people to comment <laughs> on this. What's the story there? 
Well, you know, whenever we have something that takes our attention but doesn't require a whole lot of cognitive thought, you know, really concentrating on something or analyzing something, it can just take us to that zone, a little bit of a zone state where you can be really present. I think we all have something like this. For some people, it's running. For some people, it's some kind of, you know, knitting or fabric art. For some people, it it might be gardening. But, you know, there's real, there's real pleasure in it because it acts as a mindfulness practice. It allows you to, to hit that place of presence and, and really just being in the here and now, which is, it, for me, it's hugely relaxing. I find that I'm so much calmer and happier after I spend a little time doing this thing. The fact that I build things that then I can give away as gifts is also cool. But even if I couldn't, just the value of being in that state makes me a happier person to be around. <laughs> mm, I hear that. Yes, that's excellent. Well, so we're going to talk about brain science and learning and such. So maybe we can go meta for a moment. You know, before we do that, do you have any quick tips for listeners right now? Because we're about to learn something. You know, what might they do in this very moment of listening to maximize the learning from the exchange we're having right here? Great question. So the big myth that we all believe in, but which is not true, is that we can multitask while learning. And we just Uh-oh. cannot do that. <laughs> Everyone doing the dishes right now is like, stop. Yeah. Put the wands down. <laughs> Put them down. You know, we can multitask in other parts of our life. Like you can cook and listen to something, but when you truly want to learn and learning requires that you take it in and it gets pushed to your short-term memory and then ultimately your long-term memory, our brain really needs to be able to focus on it and and gather all that information so it has a complete set of data to push into memory. And when we multitask, we kind of flip back and forth. It's called switch tasking. So, you know, if you were also trying to look at your email and listen to this podcast, what your brain would do is I'd become the peanuts character in the background, wah, 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 as you read the email, or you're listening to what I say and you're not really you're not really, you know, glomming on to what the words in the email are saying. So if you really want to learn, just just focus on learning. If you're listening to this for entertainment, it's okay that you're doing the dishes at the same time. But if you really want to push it into memory, give it the focus it deserves. Okay. So that's the first thing is giving it the focus. Does anything else leap to mind? Yeah. You know, with any kind of learning, learning is stickier, meaning you'll be able to recall it better in the future if you try to find a way to attach it to something you know. So as we're talking today about brain tips and tricks, if you remember a time that worked for you in the past or you imagine a time doing it or it calls up a memory, anytime you can attach it or it reminds you of something you learned in a class in college, hook it to something you already know and it makes it stickier than if you just let it be kind of a a free-floating piece of information. Now, good teachers will do the work and help you attach it to something you know, but that's a trick you can also use for yourself is find a way to connect it to something you've already experienced or heard or seen or lived through. It's funny, that really reminds me of when I was in high school in economics class, I started thinking about, you know, the firm and profit maximizing and and how in a way that's kind of like life, there's stuff you like doing that's like revenue, stuff you don't like doing that's like cost. And you might try to maximize your profit, or you might say that's a hedonistic way to live your life and you shouldn't. (laughs) But anyway, that's how I was kind of like connecting with things and it makes a world of difference. And then subsequently, I guess you might call these scaffolding or mental models, or there's probably a number of terms neuroscientists use for these concepts we have to attach stuff to. What do we call those? It's called a schema. 
Is what schema. There it is. Yeah. So there's schemas in your brain for all kinds of things, and they're different for each of us. But the trick to good learning or to putting it into memory is to hook it to a schema you already have. Well, you know, it's funny. As I think about that, I've done this. I've done this kind of naturally with a lot of things. And maybe that's why I got good grades. So it's interesting, like anything from like a computer game I love to play. I was like, you know what? This is a lot like a missile base. (laughs) Defending a planet, you know, or tell me what are some of your go-to schemas you find yourself naturally attaching new learning to frequently? So I build learning for other people frequently. So when I'm trying to build an experience for my audience, I try to find something that I know is is pretty common knowledge. So for example, I have a change training and I've built it all around this idea of going hiking or mountain climbing. And even if you've never done it, you know what it is, right? So as I'm playing mm-hmm. with the concepts and liking change to different kinds of terrain and journeys, your brain has a place in its, you know, because it's heard of that before. So picking, you know, if you're designing learning for other people, this is what great science and math teachers did in high school and college is they took something that's fairly abstract and they found a way to attach it to something you already knew about, right? And how you did Mm -hmm. that with your own economics class. So, you know, if you're designing learning for others, think about that. And for yourself, whenever you can you know, put yourself through that little pace of, huh, what does this sound like? What, what can I connect this to? Do I have an experience of this? It just gives your brain something to physically adhere it to in a way that, that makes a difference in terms of how it is stored in the brain and the ways your brain can call it up in the future. Because the way our brain calls up a memory is all of our senses are part of when we learn. So we've got the visual, the auditory, the taste, the smell. All of those are like threads and they get bundled up. This bundled of sensations get kind of packaged as part of the memory. And so pulling any one of those threads can pull it back. This is why if you ever traveled in Paris, for example, and you were there and you were feeling the rain and smelling the croissants or the stinky cheese or whatever it is, you know, if you ever smell a croissant in the future, it, it can pop you back to this picture of Paris. Oh my gosh, I remember mm-hmm. being there. So memory is actually tied through all these senses. And, and we, if we're intentional about that, then we can use those threads to help pull that, that thing back out of the brain. Mm. Well, yeah, that is interesting. And so, well, well, we fast forwarded right to some immediate tactics, but maybe you could zoom out a little bit in terms of, so you got this book, Wired to Grow, and now a, a version two even. Can you tell us sort of what's the main thesis and what's sort of like the hot new discoveries that uh, warranted a, a second version? Great question. So I wrote the first book five years ago. And it came out, honestly, for me, just doing research into neuroscience because I wanted to be better at my craft as a chief learning officer. So I, I mm-hmm. literally did the, the learning for my own benefit. And then I ended up sharing it as a presentation and, and people were like, oh my God, you need to share this with more people. So I started doing it as a keynote and then it turned into a book. And neuroscience is still a relatively young field. I mean, it's only recently that they've even had the technology and new technologies coming online all the time to even see inside of us and see what really is happening. So neuroscience is relatively fresh on the scene in terms of giving us a new way of looking at any behavior. I happen to look at learning, but you can apply it to anything. And so honestly, you know, I had written two books since the first one. I had done the one on change, which is Wired to Resist, and I had done the one on Teams, Wired to Connect. And like anything else, as I wrote books, I got better at it. 
So then I kept looking at this first book and it just looked so mm. sad compared to the other two. It, it wasn't as well researched. The graphics were terrible. I was just like, you know, it needs a refresh. And I was really busy. And I thought, you know, instead of writing a whole new book, why don't I just refresh Wired to Grow? I can update some studies. I can clean up the graphics. It won't take that much work, right? So I actually took mm -hmm. it on as a quote unquote doable project. Well, in five years, so much had changed around what we know about learning that I literally had to rewrite the whole thing. I mean, it's 90% new material and 10% some of the original concepts from the book. So um, the reason I did a, you know, the real reason I did a second version was to kind of get that up to speed with the other ones. But what was really exciting was seeing just how much more new information we've discovered about how we learn, what memories are, you know, how we drive behavior change, what creativity is. Like, there's just so many good things that the book ended up being twice as big as it was originally. Mm -hmm. Well, that's cool. So can you share with us, like, what is sort of a new discovery that is sort of mind-blowingly cool? All right. Well, there's several of them, but let me give you, <laughs> let me give you a couple of them. Uh, one of the first is just really understanding what creativity is. They can now see when we have those aha moments and a lot of our best ideas come from aha moments. Even if you're like trying to solve a problem, usually you don't solve it in that minute that you're concentrating on it. It's usually when you step back and take a break or you're in the shower. Oddly enough, showers are one of the number one places people have moments of creativity mm -hmm. that they can now see the aha moment. They can see the brainwaves change on the MRI machine a few milliseconds before the aha moment actually happens. And they can also see that right before the aha moment happens, our visual cortex goes offline. Scientists call it huh. the brain blink, but essentially it's all happening in that millisecond before we go, oh, eureka. And what's interesting now is as, as they're understanding what creativity is, we can now set ourselves up for having moments of creativity. So some things to do are the resting neocortex, take a break, Give your, give your brain that chance to step back from what it's concentrating on because that allows more regions of the brain to come online and those connections to, to happen, those synapses to fire. The second mm -hmm. thing you can do is prepare your brain to have connections. So this is really about getting outside of your comfort zone, reading sources and, and topics that seem unrelated or that would not be your normal go-to. So it's kind of like walking into a library instead of going into your favorite section, you go explore a lot of different sections in the library and expose your brain, let it take in more stuff. You're preparing it to, to draw connections that you might not normally see. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is you can do what's called sensory gating, which is stuff like taking a shower where, you know, we have the white noise and we're warm and we can kind of set up this place for things. Sitting out in nature is another form of sensory gating. Um, being near water seems to be particularly effective. And so you just allow this, these senses to kind of take a break and it seems to set up that moment to create more aha moments. Well, now you got me wondering about hopping into a, a sensory deprivation chamber, <laughs> aka float tank. Like, is there some science there that you're gaining all kinds of senses there? I mean, I haven't personally sat in one and I didn't remember reading a study specifically about <laughs> that, but it makes sense to me that that would work, right? Yeah. It's like, I need my pen and paper though. <laughs> Can I get that in here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is what's funny is that, you know, before 
I'm sure you're like this too. Like when I'm trying to solve a problem, I just want to keep at it. And I used to get annoyed when I would feel tired or I just need to have a break. I'd feel like I was slacking. But since I read this research, I'm now like, great, take a break. I'm setting myself up for the aha moment. So it gets me more committed Uh to the breaks. And honestly, it's made work go better now that I'm kind of working with how the brain creates moments of aha. Yeah. Well, you know, I really appreciate that explanation associated with like sensory gating. Like that's what these things have in common. That's why showers do that because you are in an environment where you're, some things are shut off, they're closed. And so there you go. I heard a fun story. I, I guess, I think it might've been Aaron Sorkin got yes. great ideas in the shower. So he just built a shower in his office and took like eight <laughs> showers a day. Well, it's interesting when I'm teaching this group to crowds of people, I'll, I'll ask, where do you get your best ideas? And shower is one of the number one reasons. In fact, I encourage people to read a book uh, that's written, it's called The Blue Mind. And it's all about the research of why water being in it, on it, under it, around it, seems to lend itself to both us feeling calmer and having more creativity. Oh, that's really cool. Well, so I, I want to talk about some calm okay. for a moment. So we're talking about brains and working to process and learn information. It seems like quite a, an epidemic folks have these days is just information overwhelm, overload, too many emails, too many incoming things, competing priorities, like what even do I focus on? I just feel maybe like you're drowning, you know, in all the stuff. So can you tell us what does that do to our brain and what should we do about it? That's a great question. And I definitely suffer from this as well. Um, Well, it's true. I mean, technology has outstripped biology. We now have technology pushing things at us faster, bigger, better than we are biologically designed to consume. So Uh we are overwhelmed. and, And that's why I think, you know, we're seeing stress levels go up, people not taking vacations. You know, it used to be that email was a convenient way to communicate. And now there's just so much pressure. People want instant communications. There's so many different channels at which we can have information pushed at us. And we are living in the information economy. So everyone's trying to get our attention with, you know, it's it's about screen time now, right? How long can we keep the eyeballs on the screen? So, you know, remember there is a capitalistic component of it where people are maximizing that because that's where their dollars come from. It's why Uh when you're on social media, it constantly is loading up more things to click on. You will never get to the bottom of the page. You'll never get to the last video because it's designed to keep taking you down the rabbit hole. So with that, and I love technology, it's beautiful and wonderful, and yet it can can really stress us out. So we all have to have some agency and some sense of self-control. I think this is why, you know, digital detox is really important, like giving yourself a day to just not be on any screens, coming home at the end of the day and just setting your devices down and not picking them up for a while or and definitely Mm -hmm. making sure you don't take your screens to bed. These are all important things to think about. The other thing, too, is that, you know, remember, we're a tribal species. We are designed and built to live in tribes of about 150 and that's what our brain was was really built to keep track of, relationships we could manage. And so now that we're global, and trust me, I, I get the beauty of being a globally connected world. I think it makes us more empathetic to our, our brothers and sisters of different cultures around the world. It also means, though, that we're trying to track too many things. And particularly because news likes to send us all the negative stories, it can put us into that amygdala fight or flight response of feeling stressed all the time. 
Mm-hmm. Because when we when we look at the news, what we're hearing about is 10 people drowned in Bangladesh. And, right. you know, so many people, this happened to them here and a plane crashed over there and fires here. Not that we shouldn't be informed, but if you're not careful, your brain is literally feeling, you know, like you're under attack all day, every day. Because to your brain, these are all members of your tribe and you should, you should gear up to fight, to fight that foe. So I think it's also a little bit about, you know, controlling access to yourself, you know, not letting all these messages come to you. And then also intentionally finding ways to find good stories and, and counterbalancing the negative spin that's designed to sell things. Yes. Yeah. I think that's well said. And I feel it, you know, in terms of, Sometimes I'll hop into an Uber and then they'll just have sort of some news going. And it's like, you know, this home was broken into and this thing burned down. And I kind of go back and forth with this in terms of like, just how much do I really need to know this? Like being informed sounds like a good thing that we want to be. But then again, how crucial is it? And sometimes I get a little bit snarky with uh, <laughs> with like like news newspapers or media's like, here's the news you need to know. Like, do I need to know it today? Yeah. Really? Is that a need? To what extent do I need it? And <laughs> I get all philosophical <laughs> about the matter. So what I've come away with is terms of, hey, different professionals at different times have different needs for news consumption. And so if you're running a political campaign, Yeah, you're going to need to know a lot of those things about what's going on there. And if you're sort of uh, just engineering uh, innovative technological solutions over at uh, XYZ Company, you may not need to know what the headlines are all that often. Exactly. And then it's just about realizing that your devices and the and the companies that feed those devices are going to be trying to get your attention. They're going to use whatever strategy they can to get more of your time. So at some point uh-huh. you just have to say no, I'm turning it off. I'm having a no, you know, a no technology window of my day. And then just pay attention to your body. Our body is really an amazing thing and it it will give you information. If you're getting a knot in your stomach, turn it off. You know, mm-hmm. if you're starting to feel anxious, give yourself a break. Your body is giving you information about how it's receiving it. This is why mindfulness is so great. It makes us pay attention to our bodies. And it's also why fabric arts and knitting and running and all this stuff is great too, because it gets us out of that zone. It gets us more into the here and now where probably we're okay. Mm-hmm. Well, so you mentioned mindfulness and I'm thinking about, I was amused with, in our last interview, I asked you about a favorite book and you told me, <laughs> I think you said, I haven't read this book yet, but it's going to be my favorite. It's Altered Traits (laughs) (laughs) because this is a topic you love and authors you love. So, you know, it's going to be great sight unseen, which I I thought was was pretty awesome in terms of that's how closely you're following the stuff. So (laughs) while we're talking about mindfulness, maybe you can convince me and um, many listeners here. What was some of the striking research results coming from that book or elsewhere that you've seen to make me say, Pete, I am 100% certain you will see (laughs) an amazing return on your time and energy invested in mindfulness practice. Delay it on me. Okay. No tall task there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, two things. Boredom is a good emotion. Mm -hmm. Somehow we've been convinced that being bored is bad. And yet boredom is oftentimes where creativity comes from. Boredom is oftentimes when our brain makes those connections. Boredom is often calming for our system. So let me just 
challenge the myth that boredom is a bad emotion, I think we want to cultivate a little bit of boredom in our lives. It's not a bad thing. Two, mindfulness looks a lot of different ways. So for people like you and me, I can tell by just looking at the bookshelf that's behind you oh, right yeah. now that you and I both can like live in the world of the mind and read stuff and be into the study and analyzing stuff. Like we live in the life of the mind. So classical meditation is actually hard for me because my mind can really just chew on it. Physical mindfulness practices like yoga, walking meditations, even doing the dishes can be mindful. This is why the fabric arts thing is really working for me because it gets me into my body and out of my head. Uh For some people getting into their head and doing the the traditional meditation of just kind of watching your thoughts and letting them go, that's really valuable. So each of us needs a different type of mindfulness practice. There's a lot of different ones out there, so play with them. Please don't just give one class a try and say, that's not for me. Like try different formats and try a couple different teachers because you're going to find the one that makes you go, oh yeah, that feels good. That made me better having done that. Mm In terms of mindfulness, why you want to explore it, like the research is pretty damn convincing and pretty darn consistent. Um, It really does amazing stuff to us. So there's some immediate benefits that you get in terms of, you know, lowering your blood pressure, um, help, you know, but this is only if you're in a mindfulness practice you enjoy. If you're one that's rubbing you the wrong way, your blood pressure is probably going to go up. But generally when we find the right one, Blood pressure goes down, our our body gets into a more relaxed state. The more we practice mindfulness, the more we can stay at a calm state. And even if we have an upsetting event, we don't escalate as high as we would have before having that mindfulness practice. So our highs are not so high. And we come back to stasis faster, being able to achieve that calm state longer. Uh-huh. In addition, it's doing all kinds of things physically, like people with who have regular mindfulness practices have lower risk of heart disease, have lower risk of uh, age-related decline. There's just some good stuff that happens. And here's the kicker. They're actually showing that you live longer with a mindfulness practice, that the chronological age of your body shifts. And so one of my favorite uh, researchers on this, Richard Davidson, one of the co-authors of Altered Traits, which did turn out to be my favorite book. I was right. (laughs) It's amazing. Anyway, he has put Tibetan monks on MRI machines. Like he's taken like the people who have thousands of hours of meditation under their belt. And then he's compared them to people who've never meditated. And what was astounding was some of these, these monks who've, who probably are like, you know, world-class champions at meditation. They are many decades physically younger than their actual chronological body. Many decades, like three or four. Yes. Like, like (laughs) it helps you live longer. And I don't know if you've heard of this, but our DNA strands have these little things on the end. They're kind of like the tips of a shoelace. I can't remember the the telomerase. I can't pronounce it correctly, but there's these, these telomerase things at the end. And as our, as we live, those get shorter and shorter. And they say that basically that they predict how long we live. And when you kind of run out of the ends of those things, you're ready to die. Um, Well, people who have regular mindfulness practice, those telomerase tips get, they slow down. They don't shorten as fast as for those people who don't have mindfulness practices. So literally the body, the brain was built for a mindfulness practice of some kind, which is why you'll find a form of it in every religion and every culture. It's just that we've all kind of forgotten that. 
And so we're kind of having to come back that our, to something our body was built for. And I would just say, Pete, give it a try. Mm-hmm. Find the right channel, find the right teacher, but don't give up till you get one that makes you feel good. Oh, sure thing. And I've gotten into some good gurus from time to time with, well, Simple Habit was a sponsor and um, I think they're great. And I really enjoyed working through those. And I think it's almost like any other positive habit, you know, like exercise or, or you name it in terms of like, oh, I, I get on the wagon, I fall off the wagon. Yeah. So there's that. I wanted to say one more thing when you asked me the question of what were like some big key findings. So I got into creativity and there was one more I wanted to highlight, which I think is relevant here, which is our bodies can repair themselves in ways that are are just astounding researchers. And a couple of the things that have really developed just in the last decade is you can take people who are paralyzed and have been paralyzed for years and using the right kind of neural stimulation, you can regrow the nerves that have been damaged. And so they're actually seeing people that have been paralyzed walk again. I've seen the videos. The research is astounding. And so there's some things that that we're learning about our bodies and the ability of our bodies to regrow nerves. And it's more that we just haven't had the right, we haven't had the right knowledge to work with how the body can do it. But now researchers are starting to get that ability. So some of the things that I was seeing in the research was just, you know, neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, the the ability for our nerves to to be flexible and also to grow new ones is truly astounding. And and so, yeah, if if a paralyzed person can stand up and walk again, I can probably learn a new habit. Like (laughs) there's no excuse for any of us to say, I can't do it. It's really about, do you have the right teacher? Do you have the right motivation? And are you willing willing to put in the time? But if you get enough habits under your belt, if you get enough repetitions under your belt, you really can rewire most parts of your body in significant ways. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exciting. So Whew, well, we've covered a lot of fun territory. Let's see. <laughs> Talk about learning again. We've hit a few strategies associated with, you know, connecting things to an existing schema. If you want to have some creative ideas, you know, having some gating. I'd love to get your take on what are some of the most powerful learning strategies you've discovered that just make a world of difference in terms of what you absorb and remember and are able to, in fact, apply in life. Great question. So one of the things that came out in my researching the second edition was our understanding of memory has actually changed a lot in the last five, six years. And scientists have actually identified that there's nine different types of memory. Okay. Hmm. So there's some memory we know of, like when we are are trying to learn something, you know, academic, right? And we're we're studying facts and figures. That's one kind of memory. It's called semantic memory. There's a different kind of memory, which is embodied memory. It's called episodic. So if I was studying about France and studying facts about Paris, that would be semantic. If I went to Paris and was standing in, in, in you know, at the bottom of the Eiffel Tower, about to enter the Louvre, I would now have all these, these sensory pieces of data that would be part of that memory. No surprise here. Episodic memory is the most enduring. It's the one that that mm-hmm. is the stickiest because it's tied in our memory breaks to a whole bunch of experiences and sensations, not just did we memorize it, right? And then there's some memory that's kind of unconscious to us, stuff that like the Pavlov's dogs thing, right? We can right. create cues and get somatic responses, Um 
habits, you know, when we do something over and over again, our basal ganglia turns it into a habit that just becomes something that we can cling to and we don't really have to think about it. So part of when you're thinking about learning is to think about what kind of memory am I working with here and then build the learning to, to align with the right kind of memory as opposed uh-huh. to taking the same approach. So with that said, this is really pointing to why virtual reality is a game changer, particularly for certain kinds of things to learn that when we can take something and literally put on the headset and be in the physical space, our brain takes a VR experience and codes it as a lived memory. Uh-huh. And it responds to being in that setting as if we're really there. So it's tricking the biology enough that it, that your brain really feels like it's in that setting. And so then it's coding it as a lived memory. So VR has the potential, you know, you wouldn't use this for everything, but certain things like when you have people who need to learn a dangerous task, having them build up experiences in a safe environment is really important. Or when people need to learn a physical space and it's not easy or safe to get them into that physical space, they can build the memories of the space in a virtual environment. And certainly things that are about people, like having empathy or having emotional intelligence, when we are in a headset dealing with another person, that is also a lived memory. So we can gain some of those skill sets. So I would say virtual reality, because of how it's aligning with our biology, is really worth looking at. And realize it's evolving quickly. So if you tried a headset a year ago, you know, it was a little wonky back then. It's already better and it's going to get better every six months. So just keep trying it. But I think um, a VR strategy should be part of every organization's learning plan for the future. So VR, interesting, you know, new tool available. And then let's say if we don't have that and we have kind of the basics in terms of, you know, audiovisual stuff, PowerPoint, keynote, projector, laptop, you know, videos, audio, flip charts, whiteboards, talk it in person. <laughs> You're going to run things. through the whole list, Pete? <laughs> yeah, a few more. <laughs> so if you got the traditional tools and yep. based on how people learn, how might we choose to say, deliver or structure a presentation or a training differently such that uh, more is absorbed? Great question. I mean, one of the things that I like to say is our body is built for learning. Like we've been learning for hundreds of years, right? Before we ever had any of this technology. So what's cool is we're designed to learn from each other. Mirror neurons are specifically designed for observational learning. So we've been learning each other since we were chasing down, you know, the the woolly mammoth on the plane, watching each other do it. We've been, you know, the original PowerPoint was the cave drawing, right? Where we, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. we all gather over here and this, we, we're going to go do this. So, and sitting around the story and oh, the fire and telling stories. So learning is innately in our DNA. We learn from each other. We learn through story, narrative. I always say, whatever you're teaching, build it into a story because the brain is built for story. Whenever you can show and tell, and then more importantly, let people do it. This is where people fall down a lot. I've gone into, I'm not kidding. I've gone into Silicon Valley and sat through a two full day manager training where they're spending thousands of dollars to take people quote unquote off the job for manager training and great visuals, great content. And yet there was no practice. 
not mm-hmm. one minute of practice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, practice is how we change our behaviors. It's how we change our habits. So you got to make sure that whatever behavior you're trying to drive, whatever that looks like, what kinds of words and actions do you want to see out there? Have them do it in the room and make mm-hmm. it safe to make mistakes and do the coaching and the improving in the room. Because once people get strong in the room, they're much more likely to go do that back out in the, the field or on the floor, wherever they have to go do their jobs. So make sure that your learning elements have those pieces to it. Then in terms of how you're, you know, what kind of technology you're doing learning through, it just depends on what you can afford and where your audience is. You know, if you're, if you're working globally, you're going to need to be leveraging video conferencing and, and some tech, you know, some digital assets. If you've got people in the room, then you could be dealing with a whiteboard and some conversation. So I also, you know, I hesitate to tell people go out and invest in a bunch of stuff because mm-hmm. good learning can happen in anywhere. You can make great learning out of any tools that you have. And then because of of observational learning, I would say if you have the ability to use video, it's great because you can show people stuff and make that scalable because you videotape it once and then a bunch of people can see that. And so scalability comes down to if you invest in something, then it may be usable by a lot of different learners over time. But that doesn't, all those bells and whistles don't get you away from building good learning with aha moments and driving behavior change. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you. Well, tell me, Brett, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I would say, you know, people learn best when learning is chunked in 15 to 20 minute segments. What we have found is the human attention span really just doesn't, can't focus for longer than 20 minutes. So I, even if I'm running a half day program, it's all done in 15 minute content pieces broken up by processing of activities and practice sessions. So string a bunch of bite-sized stuff together to make a longer learning event, but don't talk to people for more than 20 minutes because they just can't retain it. And then they're not going to have the thing that you want to push into their, their memory. Mm -hmm. And when you say processing activities, I guess I'm thinking of all kinds of, you know, interactive exercises that can take a while, but I imagine you've got a couple of processing activities in mind that might just take a minute or two. What are some of those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, literally it can be as short as take one minute and jot down some notes about how this applies in your own life or a memory you've had with this, right? So you're just Mm -hmm. asking them to attach it to something. You can give them some kind of reflective question to answer or a conversation to have with a partner. They could take a quick assessment. I kind of always do like five minute activities, one to five minute activities. They don't have to be long, but it basically just says this thing that you just learned, play with it for a minute. And when you play mm-hmm. with it for a minute, you're naturally pushing it and attaching it to your schemas. You're naturally personalizing it a little bit. And then the brain can be ready to learn more. But if we keep giving people more content, not only does their attention span wane, but you know, then they have more and more and more to try to attach to something, and then they're going to miss some pieces. So chunk it. Chunk it into bite-sized experiences. It doesn't have to be big and showy. Literally, you know, a couple good reflective questions or a dyad conversation and you're good to go. Okay, thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I love this quote from Robin Benacasa. She's a world champion. And she says, you don't inspire your teammates by showing them how amazing you are. You inspire them by showing them how amazing they are. Mm-hmm. Yes, I like that. 
And how about a favorite study experiment or bit of research? You know, I'm still into what's happening with mindfulness. I think that continues to be a great place for us to explore. But um, I'm really interested right now in kind of a sense of purpose and innovation. So I've been doing a lot of research on what drives innovation and also the brain science behind having a sense of purpose or a meaningful life. So those are some things that I've been really digging on right now. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned altered traits. Any other favorite books? I'm really enjoying Bill Bryson's current book called The Body. It's just really interesting research about our whole internal working, but he's also a comedian, so he makes it really funny. So I'm enjoying the science behind that. Oh, cool. And how about a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? Uh, you know, PowerPoint is my go-to thing for everything. Uh, but I also have been doing a lot of video editing with Camtasia. And so those are uh -huh. tool, two tools I use frequently um, to do the work that I do. All right. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate? Folks quote it back to you often. I recently heard from some folks who went through the change training and they just said that they found that they were able to apply it to everything, not only work changes, but personal changes, even just kind of our response to things that are difficult in our life, that that's a typical, that's a type of change journey as well and, and how we resist. So uh, I, I oftentimes get people who email me and say, hey, thanks for sharing that. I now really see all the ways that, you know, I'm resisting or people around me are resisting and, and have some new ways to try to help people move through. Uh -huh. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? My website is the best place to go, britondriata.com. Everything I'm up to is there. And then I love it when people connect with me on LinkedIn. I really do enjoy my community of, of folks on LinkedIn. So please connect with me. I'd love to hear from you. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say give yourself permission to have a break. We need more breaks than we need more to-do lists. So put down the device, go find your knitting or fabric art or running or whatever gives your brain a break and uh, just let all this stew around for a while so that you can have some aha moments tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Well, Britt, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck and fun in, in all the ways that you're growing and learning and connecting and doing your thing. Thank you so much, Pete. I love connecting with you. I love your podcast. I love your audience of learners. We're all part of the same tribe and I'm excited to stay in touch. I found Britt's reminder about those attention spans of 15 to 20 minutes, super helpful. And that's actually caused me to adjust some of my training programs. Like, oh yeah, you're right. I was going a little long there, Britt. Thanks for the reminder. I'm going to conscientiously ensure that I've got a time to pause and think through what is a thought-provoking question that I can pose to my audience in the workshop so that they will stop, think, process, and it might only take a minute or two. And if it's online, it's pretty handy. You can just have everyone type it, you know, in their Zoom. If it's offline, you can have some people just write it down, or you can have them share it with a neighbor, or you could have a few brave souls if they're feeling chatty and bold and comfortable uh, to share out loud with the full group. So great reminder. Thank you, Britt. I am going to be doing that more. I've fallen away from that a little bit because I just get so excited sharing all my stuff. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F543. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Richard Metcalf. He's an impressive fellow and he is talking about how to grow your influence. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. 
You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home... Yes, cool. ...or attending one live... No! ...you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.